Hey, welcome back to the Jesus Magnet Podcast. We're doing the Bible Overview Series, and today we're doing Late Prophets, and uh, what else, Johnny? Intertestamental. And Intertestamental. And uh, we've got our very, very first guest wow. that we ever had on the podcast back again for probably the 60th episode or something <laughs> like that. Uh, Johnny Galtz, welcome back. Um, wow. Awesome to have you back. Yeah, good to be back. I didn't realize I was the first. <laughs> yeah, you are. Number one. Dang. And then we've got Rose Johnson. How are you doing, Rose? Pretty good. Thanks and for having me back. Thank you. And Thompson, Joel Thompson. Hey there. And Joel Hillary, of course. So um, we'll get started. We'll just bring this music down and pass it over to Johnny. Yes. <laughs> Smooth. Awesome. Well, Rose was telling me everything that you guys were learning in the past weeks and... Yeah, excited to be here with you guys. That's crazy. I forgot that I was the first, but I do remember it. Mm. Back then, we were at Joel Hillary's house. I think it was how to read your Bible yeah. or yeah. something like that. And just some of your testimony, too. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Yeah. And now you guys have your own epoxy table. You really made it in the <laughs> Oh, <house>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little statue of a, an eagle, too. Yes, with a psalm on it. <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> yeah, nice touch. It'll be like Joe Rogan's table soon. Pretty soon. <laughs> Actually, we want to get something to, like, commemorate all of the little seasons we've had. Yeah. So this cool little eagle, which has meaning. What the eagle mean? is um, where we first started in the tiny house, uh, yeah. in, in my parents' house, because that's actually um, in the shape of an eagle from Bird's Eye oh, View, sure. the house. Oh. And um, the little pirate boat is from, because we were in the kids' room, and it had Winnie the Pooh on it. Yeah, little oh. pirate boat affairs. <laughs> That's cool. So pretty soon we'll have, I don't know, more stuff. Something so. else. Yeah, we'll just hoard. Cool. Nice. Well, uh, yeah, do you just, uh, well, last week, sorry, Rose. So last week we talked, um, or last week, just recently, but we talked about um, the early prophets. We did a little bonus episode on that. And before that, we had done the period of the kings. And so is there anything that you wanted to highlight as we jump from there into the late prophets? Yeah, so um, the last episode we were going over a bit of just what, um, yeah, the Book of the Prophets looked like. So, um, yeah, it was during the time frame, our, well, the early prophets were during the time frame that they were in the kingdom, and then... Um, the later prophets are once they go into exile and basically before Jesus comes up. Um, and yeah, so we have to understand with the prophets that is written to a specific audience, the Israelites, yeah. and we can sometimes get lost in like wanting to copy and paste it to our lives, but it's so good to take a step back and understand that God was addressing the idolatry of the Israelites, but even more so the the heart posture behind it and ultimately he was uh, addressing injustice issues and so I mean it's kind of goes back to the idea that you are what you worship so if you are worshiping these gods that are filled with anger and sexual immorality mm. you're going to reflect that yeah and so that's essentially what God was addressing with their early prophets um, while they were in the promised land. And we saw a lot with the kings. There were a lot of evil kings. Yeah. <laughs> and there were all these mini revivals with the good kings. But, yeah, God, and what's so cool is with the prophets, God was faithful to keep the Israelites in check and mm. to continue 
um, yeah, just to turn back to him and to, to walk in faithfulness in their covenant with God. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. So uh, that's where we left off. And so the northern kingdom, uh, they kind of went into business with Assyria and then got exiled into Assyria. Yeah. And then the lower, the southern kingdom did the same with Babylon. Mm-hmm. We made a treaty, but then Babylon took over and exiled them. Mm-hmm. So are we jumping right off? Into that, Johnny, are we going, are they exiled now, or is this, we'll start a bit before that? Uh, we'll start a bit before that. I'll okay. kind of explain a little bit more. Awesome. Yeah, go ahead. Up. So, um, yeah, Rose was kind of filling me in on what she shared. Um, I think just a few things before we hop in. I think exactly what Rose said, understanding the history of the prophets and where they prophesied in the time frame is super important. And so, if you guys haven't, look into like a timeline of like what king is reigning and what's happening and where the prophets are because sometimes when we read our bibles especially if you're doing like a year like bible in a year plan or just reading straight through or whatever it can get really confusing on like why prophets are saying things and a lot of the times if you look at the time period it actually makes a lot of sense um and so that's hopefully what i'll get into and cover mostly today is just kind of the time frame in the context of the content of these books um yeah so i'd encourage you guys just put the prophets in their time frame if you're reading one of these books just look back you know who's the king kind of what what uh foreign power is prominent at that time and that'll really help you to (laughs) dissect and understand and digest i guess some of the content in these books and just remembering like in the big picture of god's story um the big thing, right, that he's using and that the context of the Israelites is covenant and that's something that's really important to them. And when we think of prophets, often we just think of people who are telling about future events, but actually another huge significant role of the prophet is being the covenant and attorneys. And I'm, I'm thinking Rose probably talked about this last week, but I think it's just a good reminder for us to keep at the front of our mind when we're reading these books is that as much as the prophets are talking about the future, they're also talking about the covenant that they made with God at Mount Sinai, um, the Mosaic covenant and the law. And so um, they'll really, really be pointing to that. And so if you guys, when I teach this, I like going into Deuteronomy 28 because it's this whole list of, you know, if you obey God, this is what's going to happen. And he says, you know, you're going to be prosperous. You're going to have children, um, there's going to be peace in the land, but if you disobey God, there's going to be death, there's going to be destruction, there's going to be drought, pestilence, famine, and eventually there's going to be war and exile. And so when you keep that in mind, I think like when you, you can oversimplify things, or not oversimplify them, but simplify it to that level of like the prophets are basically saying, hey, you made this covenant with God saying if we don't, if we disobey, then these things are going to happen. And so this is how these things are going to happen. Guess what? Drought's coming. Guess what? Babylon's coming. Um, so you could simplify it to that, but obviously there's a bit more uh, juice in like, I don't know, a bit more happening in that. But just remember that, that the prophets are pointing backwards as much as they're pointing forwards. Um, and so when we come into the late prophets, it's a really interesting time period because as Rose explained, right, Israel is just scattered throughout the world Mm. and judah is basically down to two cities so there's jerusalem and one more i can't remember the name of it but basically assyria came down and if you remember in second kings 
that's when uh, Hezekiah, you know, they're they're under siege by Syria. Hezekiah prays, and this angel of the Lord delivers them, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, we're free!" But at the same point, they're basically like hanging on by a thread. Mm. And so when we come into this time frame, what had happened in the world was Assyria's empire was starting to fracture, and so Egypt had broken loose from. Assyria's control and Babylon had also broken free. And so Assyria um, was just kind of trying to figure out they were on their last leg. And so when we come to this period, especially with King Josiah, um, Judah's kind of free by default because there's no like superpower imposing their will. Assyria doesn't have enough resources to kind of keep Judah tamed. And so they just kind of have this freedom. And so that's actually why Hezekiah ends up dying. I remember being really confused by it. It's like Egypt is marching and Hezekiah goes out to fight him and dies. And you're like, why would Hezekiah, you know, it's just kind of a confusing story when you understand, oh, he's trying to stop Egypt from becoming the next world power because they're actually enjoying their freedom. Yeah. You're like, oh, that actually makes sense. And it is unfortunate that he dies, but that happens. Um, and so right around Josiah's lifetime is when we kind of come into the late prophet era. And so there had been some break in between like Isaiah, Hosea, and all those other prophets up to our time frame. But it sounds like Rose kind of covered some of that history. So yeah. basically, you know, Hezekiah, there was this deliverance and Manasseh, who was Hezekiah's son, was really bad. And then Josiah came along and he was really good but it was kind of too little, too late. In that sense, like, after Manasseh, it was kind of like God was set on, like, destruction was coming to Jerusalem, and it was basically uh, trying to save as many people as he could. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of like the content of these books is it's like the last hour. And so I really enjoy them because it's really like, I don't know, I just feel like God's heart cry is so clear of, like, I don't want to destroy you, I don't want destruction to happen, but basically you guys are choosing it. Can I ask a quick question, Johnny? Yeah. Um, each time a prophet comes, is it always in that last hour? Is there a cycle when God rises up a prophet sort of each time? Or is it when people are at their worst? Or is it sort of a mixed when, when, think, whenever? Yeah, I think it's a mix because, like, Elijah and Elisha were kind of in the middle of Israel and Judah's yeah. heyday, so to speak. But I think it more has to do with... Well, this maybe is a bigger discussion, but uh, who is it? Samuel. He kind of started the school of the prophets and, like, prophets becoming more prominent. And so I think, I don't think there's any cycle of, like, it's the last hour, but it was just God's way of making a plea to them mm. and speaking to his people. And so it is a little bit more toned down in Isaiah and stuff in the sense of you guys are going to be destroyed, but there's still this guidance. And that's kind of like, how when God set the kingdom, like when we when he established the kingship, or, well, I guess the people wanted the kingship, and then God ended up establishing it through Saul and David, was I don't think he wanted it in the sense of the king having supreme authority, but actually when we look at a lot of these prophets, their role is to, like, be over kings, especially Jeremiah. God says, I've appointed you over kings and kingdoms, and I think it was to give God's direction to the kings and be like hey this is what you're doing is stupid so like isaiah with hezekiah he's like don't put your trust in egypt because it's going to be this reed that's going to splinter and stab you and it's end up your alliance with them is going to end up hurting you but these guys it's like well 
Babylon's coming and you're going to die, basically. So just, you know, partner with Babylon. They're my Mm -hmm. instrument for judgment in the world. So, like, don't resist, basically. So I think that's why it's a little bit different is God's kind of trying to get them to listen in the sense of saving them, but it's still his direction, Mm. if that makes sense. But good question. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, All right. So that's a little bit of my introduction. So I guess hopping into this era, like I said, we jump in with Jeremiah and uh, Zephaniah. Sorry, I didn't want to say Zechariah. Zephaniah and Jeremiah were kind of some of the first prophets of this time frame. And this kind of lines up with Second Kings when Josiah, well, it's, it's in, I think, his 16th, his 8th year reigning because he came into power when he's eight years old. And then when he was 16, it said that the book of instruction was found. And so that's around the time when Jeremiah and Zephaniah kind of come prophesying. And basically they find the book of instruction, which a lot of people think is Deuteronomy. And um, anyways, uh, they kind of it kind of helps Josiah fuel his desire to purge judah of idolatry and all this stuff and he does some crazy stuff like he goes all the way into israel and burns the bones of priests at like the bethel shrine and on their altars and stuff so he's pretty metal which is awesome (laughs) josiah is also um but we kind of see in jeremiah and zephaniah that like even though uh josiah's heart is for the lord and for repenting that the people are kind of set in their ways and choosing that um And so Jeremiah comes, I just want to go into his calling a little bit because I feel like it's pretty relevant for kind of this whole time frame. So in Jeremiah 1, um, verse 4, it said, The word of the Lord came to me saying, uh, actually, I'm going to skip that part. Um, In verse 9, he says, The Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and overthrow, and to build and to plant. And so we kind of see this three-part calling to Jeremiah. So one part, pluck up and break down. Two parts, destroy and overthrow. But there's this third part, which is to build and to plant. And I think that kind of sums up (laughs) this late prophet era is basically a lot of it is really doom and gloom and really intense and heavy like Zephaniah's <laughs> the start of Zephaniah's like God saying I will utterly wipe away everything from the <laughs> face of the earth and you're like holy cow that's like really intense um but I think it's like God's just using strong language because it is that final hour like he's it's this like final wake up call of like guys there's you don't have much more time like repent and um but there's also this part where these prophets is to build up and to plant. And so when do you have something? Oh, yeah. yeah. So I guess to kind of put into a picture for the audience, would you say it would be like your family is visiting like the grand Canyon and like the parents kid is like about to like run off the cliff. (laughs) And so the parents kind of maybe use more expressive language (laughs) to make sure the kid doesn't like more violent themselves in the process. Like something like that. Yeah, or like, yeah, your kid running onto the road. It's like, you may grab them, and it might bruise them or something, but it's like, yeah. Yeah, the so consequences. it's like, oh, yeah. that loving heart, yeah. No, that's a really good thought. Um, 
And when we think of this context, the thing that's really annoying with the audience, so also something I would encourage you guys to do if you read these books, is one thing to look out for is when God is quoting what the people are saying, because it just kind of gives us an insight of, like, the audience, like, what they're thinking. And a lot of what they're thinking basically is putting their hope in the covenants with Abraham and putting their hope in the covenant, like, well, the fact that there's the temple in Jerusalem and the fact that they have a Davidic king sitting on the throne. And so that's they have a lot of pride, and so that's what leads them to end up being exiled is because what they do is they look at Hezekiah and they're like, hey, look at, like, when we were surrounded by the Assyrians, guess what God did? He came and wiped them all out. So, like, basically, like, God's going to protect us no matter what. And so that's what these prophets are trying to convince them of, like, no, God did that because Hezekiah repented, you know, and he did the right thing. It wasn't just because, like, God's going to protect Jerusalem no matter what. And so that's kind of like the mindset that... It's that whole umbrella thing, isn't it? Yeah. Where you've got the shelter and the mm-hmm. wings of God, you know, if you're underneath that, yep. then you'll be protected. But if you step outside it from your mm-hmm. own accord... God's not going to force you into his protection. If you want to step out into the rain, you're going to get wet. Yep. And the prophets just had to explain and remind that every time, because they just thought wherever they went, God would follow them. Yep. Being the chosen nation. Exactly. Mm. And so, and that's the thing is they're putting their trust in all these other things and not actually in God himself. Mm. And so there's a really good chapter in Jeremiah, Jeremiah seven, where he talks about, you know, you guys go out and, you know, you worship Baal, you commit adultery, you know, you um, you oppress widows and orphans, but then you come in here and say, we are delivered. And it's like, and he's like, aren't all these things abominations? And the whole thing is exactly what you're saying is like, mm. if you step outside of that umbrella, you're going to get wet. Yeah. And you think that just because you live here that you're safe and that's the umbrella, mm. but that's not the umbrella. And that's why it's important to understand the context is the Mosaic Covenant, because that's the whole thing. Deuteronomy 28. If you do good, you're blessed. If you do bad, well, (laughs) (laughs) you're going to be eating your children when you're under siege. And you're like, oh, that's really intense. So luckily, we're not under that covenant. Um, (laughs) There still are consequences, for sure, but it's not that intense. Um, Yeah, and then so if we continue on just in Jeremiah's call, there's in chapter 1, verse 11, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And he says, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I'm watching over my word to perform it. And so Jeremiah, basically his call, which I think this also kind of just sums up this whole period is God's watching over his word and ready to fulfill it. And so two parts of that is destruction. So it's like Babylon's coming. He's ready and like, he's going to fulfill those words, but also there's restoration. Mm. And so we'll get into that in a bit. Um, but I think that's really important. Like, I feel like that just kind of sums up this area era is that God is ready and willing to perform his word. And that's going to be the prophets trying to persuade these people of like, no, God's really going to do this because it had been hundreds of years of, I mean, I know in our context in the 21st century, it's kind of impossible to imagine what the world was like, but it's like, if you really think about it, like I've been trying to read through Josephus's War of the Jews and it's crazy. It, uh, like I'm learning about Herod, but the time frame of the intertestamental period, it's literally just like 
whoever is strong enough will come and conquer Jerusalem and the people are subject to them. You know what I mean? It's like impossible for us to like imagine that. But I was like imagining myself being like a farmer in that day. And I'm like, that'd be terrifying. You know what I mean? It's like, you could just be chilling out on your farm with like your sheep. And then there's like an army that comes, just takes all your stuff. And you're just like, well, I guess I'm starting from square one again. And just like the insecurity and like, I don't know, just like the context that they're in. But that's like, that's the context that these people have been in is that their superpowers are coming, they're taking the land, they're doing all this stuff. And that's just kind of like normal. And so for them to feel like, I don't know, the threat of actually going into exile, they're, they're kind of like, well, God's protected us. He's, we've been in this land. Israel's gone into exile. He's delivered us from the Assyrians. He's going to deliver us from whoever else comes, but they're not actually repenting and turning to the Lord. Um, yeah. So, Coming we, into... Uh, we probably live like that a little bit today, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, God's got this. I don't need to think about anything. But sometimes God's like, no, I want to work something in you. I want to work something in your heart and, and actually seek me, not just assume that I'm going <laughs> to fix everything in your life. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. you got to actually search after God. And sometimes God's saying, you know, you've got to repent from this. And, yeah. and this this will get you under the umbrella again. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's really good. Um, yeah, I like to talk about that in when I go over Jeremiah 7 when I usually teach it, but that's a really good thought, you know. That's like, is God really requiring obedience from us still today? You know, it's like some people are like, no. Yeah. But it's like, I mean, those principles are still true, you know. It's like, yeah. Anyways, good thoughts. Um, so, King Josiah, when we come into this picture, so he has a bit of a interesting, well, Basically, the last time frame of before Judah goes into exile is just five kings. And the easiest way to think about it is there's Josiah, and then there's three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years. And so Josiah, once he dies, he goes out to fight Egypt when they're going up to defend Assyria. Um, what happens is his son, Jehoahaz, gets put into the kingship. He's the firstborn son. Um, but when Egypt... Basically, they come back three months later, and they're like, all right, Jehoahaz, you're obviously going to be sympathetic to um, Judah, and you're going to fight against us. So what they would do is they took him out of power and put in what they would call a puppet king. And so they'd put in the next up kind of as like a I scratch my back, you scratch, or yeah. You, wait, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. There we go. Right. I scratch my back, scratch, you scratch yours. Yes. <laughs> I'm not scratching your back. No. Um, so the whole idea, right, is you would put maybe the second born into power as like, don't rebel against us. Like, I gave you this position of power. And so that's what Egypt does is they put in Jehoiakim, and he ends up reigning for 11 years. And then basically the same thing happens with Babylon. Jehoiakim dies, Babylon comes, they take his son, and then they put in his uncle, who's Josiah's third born. I know it's kind of confusing, but just look up a picture. It's way easier. Mm -hmm. um, who's Zedekiah, and he reigns for the last 11 years. Um, so that's a little bit of a brief overview, I guess, of kind of what, what's happening. But So when we come to Jeremiah, right, I talked about Josiah dies, Jehoahaz gets exiled to Egypt, and then Jehoiakim comes into power. Um, and during this time, it's what I talked about where it's kind of like this limbo time because Assyria is falling, but their fall doesn't really, there's not like a clean break. It's not like Babylon conquers their capital and it's all over. It, it takes nearly, 
I can't remember the exact date, but it takes anywhere from 10 to 20 years for them to actually, basically while they don't have power, but they're, it's kind of like who's going to be the next kingdom. And so that's what's happening when Egypt is marching up and Josiah dies is they're going to back Assyria. And this was the battle. Uh, well, they're basically, they've made an alliance with Assyria and they're kind of trying to get in their good books. And so Babylon's trying to become the next superpower. Um, and so kind of during that time frame when just Jehoiakim is king, it's that limbo where Babylon, Egypt, and Assyria are all fighting each other. Um, and basically, Je- Jeremiah has the unfortunate task of trying to convince the people to repent and change their ways. And there's a story later on in Jeremiah where he talks about basically... Um, he writes down all of his prophecies and he sends them off to with his scribe to read them in the temple. And he reads them and some of these elders are like, well, this is really good. We need to like read this to the king. And they bring it to the king and they're reading it. And it says like after they finished each line, he would like cut it off and burn it in the fire. And so, yeah, Jehoiakim wasn't really like <laughs> interested to hear what Jeremiah was saying. Um, and what ends up happening is um, in... 605, basically after that drawn-out period of Egypt and Assyria and Babylon fighting, Babylon is the kind of claim, well, like, they defeat Egypt and they become, like, the next superpower. Um, And so what they would do after that is they would kind of go through what used to be Assyria's territory and basically, you know, talk to the people who are tribute to them and be like, all right, well, are you going to pay us tribute or do we need to like fight you? Hmm. And so most people would just pay them tribute. And so that ended up happening. Um, and they came to Jerusalem and then, um, they had to go back. Oh wait, no. So what they also did was when they would come, um, is they would take the, like the elite people of society. And so, the whole point was basically you want to get the best people out of these countries, one, to help for yourself and your own defense, but also to make these other countries more vulnerable and, like, weak and, like, defenseless against you because if they don't have, like, their smart people, then they're probably not going to rebel against you. And so this was in 605 B.C., and so Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and took the exiles. And so this is when he took... um, Oh, wait, no, this isn't yet. He hasn't. So he takes basically the cream of the crop. So this is where Daniel goes to Babylon. And we'll pick up Daniel later. But he goes to Babylon and he becomes a eunuch, which is basically like an advisor to Nebuchadnezzar. And we kind of see his influence in the kingdom, right? He has a lot of influence in these kingdoms because he's not just like random Joe Schmo. He's like actually probably from an elite family and an educated guy. Interesting. and so um, he goes to exile. Um, and then in 601, so a few, four years later, Egypt kind of recovers. And so Babylon and Egypt fight again um, on the plain of Gaza, which is right around, well, it's near Judah. And so what happens is Babylon ends up winning, but because it was such like an intense battle, they have to return to Babylon to recover and rebuild their army. And so this kind of creates another period of time where, you know, Babylon's not strong enough to come and be like, all right, you owe us money, you know, don't do these things. And so what does Judah do? Well, I mean, I mean, 
think if no one was forcing you to pay taxes, would you really pay taxes? I don't know. That's a question for <laughs> you guys to think about. But that's kind of what Israel had, right? If they don't have to pay taxes to this foreign kingdom, would they actually really pay taxes? Probably not because most of these things that they were being put on them were crippling them. And so they decide, hey, if we're not being forced to pay, why would we pay? So let's just not. And so um, this is kind of what Rose was talking about is they started these rebellions against Babylon. Mm -hmm. And so this was still while Jehoiakim, so he was uh, Josiah's second born. Um, He was still in power. And it's interesting in Jeremiah 22, um, there's a whole chapter where Jeremiah is kind of prophesying against the different kings during the time, but it says that Jehoiakim will be, excuse me, it says that he'll be buried with the burial of a donkey and that no one will mourn for him. And what ends up happening is that, so during this time where there's kind of like no law and order, Babylon's back and back recovering, is that um, there's these Midianite raiders who are coming. And if you guys remember in Judges, the same thing was happening. And that's why where we find Gideon is he's threshing wheat in a wine press, which is the opposite place of where you'd be threshing wheat. Usually you do it out in the open. So that's easy to get all the chaff away and you can get your wheat, right? Mm -hmm. The wind takes all the chaff and you get what you want. But if you're threshing in a wine press underground, you're doing it because you're afraid that your crops are going to get taken. And that's the same thing that's happening here is these Midianite raiders, because Babylon's not like scaring them away. They're coming and taking everything from Judah. And what ends up happening is Jerusalem ends up shutting its gates because like basically they can't defend against these people if everyone's out in the villages. And during that time, Jehoiakim dies. And because the people are so afraid of the Midianite raiders, they just throw his body over the wall of the city and he <laughs> dies. Fulfilling the prophecy. Fulfilling yeah, awesome. the prophecy. Isn't that crazy? Mm. Um, they throw the king's body. Yeah, throw the king's body over the wall. <laughs> and so that is in uh, 598. Um, yeah, so I think that's really interesting. When I learned about that, I was like, wow, that's crazy. Um, And so what naturally happens, right, when Babylon recovers is that they want, well, they they need to go through their kingdom again, just like when they first established it. All right, are you guys going to keep rebelling against us or are you going to, you know, submit and pay taxes, do the right thing? And so what happens actually is in 597, so a year later, Babylon is coming through and they come back to Jerusalem and they end up laying siege to it. And so, Rose, did you talk about what like a siege means? Okay, so siege is basically just ancient warfare because walled cities were like the defense. Basically what they would do is they would close their gates so no one could come in, but what opposing armies would do is they would just camp outside and essentially try to starve out the people in the city, try to get them to surrender, weaken them, and they would build ramps and do all that stuff. But it wasn't like intense or super intense warfare. It was mostly just starving them out. And so Babylon ends up actually sieging and capturing Jerusalem. And so we often think of that as like the last straw, but they actually had conquered it, um, which is interesting. And so Babylon takes Jerusalem. But if you think of it from like a, a business point of view, like, uh, well, Israel is like prime real estate, you know, like there's a a bunch of really good trade for Babylon to destroy Mm -hmm. Jerusalem. It's like, well, basically we're just losing. It'd be like torching down a massive like skyscraper Mm -hmm. that could make you millions of dollars. 
It's mm. like, why would I do that if yep. I could just get the tenants to pay me the tax? Like, that's better than me torching this thing. Yeah. You know, and so that's kind of their mindset. It's like, all right, these people have rebelled, but this is an asset to us, so we're not going to destroy it. But what we're going to do is they take another... Um, another group of exiles and so they're like all right if taking the elites didn't like keep them from rebelling then maybe we'll just take um it says that we learned this in ezekiel is that they take 10 like 10,000 skilled laborers so this is where they take jehoiachin so i talked about how jehoiachin reigned for three months that was after jehoiakin died and he was put into power and then babylon comes they take him put zedekiah in power and take 10,000 skilled laborers and so this is where ezekiel goes to Babylon. And so when we come to Ezekiel, that's kind of his context is this in-between time where Jerusalem's actually still standing, but he's in Babylon and like exiled. And there's this group of exiles. And so there's how many years? There's an 11 year gap where basically Jerusalem's still standing, but the end's coming. Mm. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel are trying to get the people to repent and change. Like, basically, Jeremiah's message ends kind of changes from, you know, like, guys just, like, repent, do good, to basically, like, well, you know, submit to Babylon, God's chosen Babylon. He has this uh, uh, enacted symbol where God tells him to wear the yoke of an oxen, and he's like, just as Jeremiah's wearing the yoke of this oxen, like, submit to Babylon's yoke. Like, God's given authority to Babylon, so submit to that. Um, but, I mean, the people don't, <laughs> which is really unfortunate. I sort of understand that, though. Yeah. Like, every time God's taken them out of captivity, mm-hmm. and then for the first time God's saying, you're actually protected under this bondage, under yep. these different this different culture of people, yep. and go with them. So I, I, I get it, mm-hmm. the, the doubt of somebody coming and saying, no, no, it's all good. Yeah, just go with them. Yeah, <laughs> we tend to like believe positive yeah. things rather than negative. And I think weren't there some false prophets during that yeah. time who were like, that. "Oh yeah, like you like this won't happen. You just yeah. keep on doing your thing." And yeah, yeah. Well, like, that's the whole thing with Jeremiah twenty nine. So I know a lot of people like don't like Jeremiah twenty nine eleven because they're like it's so out of context. But I don't really biggest care. tattoo or something. Yeah, yeah, people are like so opposed. To, like that's so out of context. You can't get it tattooed. But I don't really like people can get it tattooed. That's fine. But that is the con- <laughs> that is the context of Jeremiah twenty nine is basically Jer- that's in this time frame where people are in exile and Jer- God tells Jeremiah, hey, write a letter to these exiles, and you know what does he say? He's like build build homes. You know like build gardens establish yourself build businesses because he says you know i'm gonna well previously he'd said that they're gonna be exiled 70 years in jeremiah 25 and so it's kind of this thing of like you're not just gonna be there for a couple months so like Mm. establish yourselves plant roots and like i will draw you back but for now he says you know seek the welfare welfare of the the city that you're in because in its welfare you will find your welfare mm. and that's where it gets to jeremiah 29 11 you know i know the plans i have for you plans for welfare and not for evil to give future and a hope right so it's like my plans for you are good and i am going to bring you back mm. but it's not going to be anytime soon mm. and that's what the false prophets were saying so actually when i was quoting that yoke of oxen one or where yeah where Jeremiah was wearing that yoke, one of the false prophets was like, I have a word of the Lord. And he like broke the oxen 
the yoke and he's like, God's going to bring them back in like two years. Right. And <laughs> Jeremiah's like, okay, well, you know, if what you're saying is true. And he talks about like the, uh, the prophetic test of like through Deuteronomy, like how do you know a prophet's true? He's yeah. like, by what they say comes true. And basically then God's like, well, tell this guy that he's going to die in the, like within the year. And like three months later, this guy dies and it's like pretty intense. And you're like, yeah, but the whole thing is right. And still the people don't listen to Jeremiah, which is kind of, that's a little weird. It is a little weird. Uh, you know, I like that actually, because even, and I like that you reference uh, Deuteronomy because that's sort of a sim, like a similar thing that we can go off of today where if someone's prophesying or saying something that they say is from the Lord and we have the word and if it's contradictory to the word, then it's probably not from the Lord. Mm-hmm. And these guys are, he's actually referencing Deuteronomy and me and Rose talked a little bit about how the punishment fit the crime yep. and how it was like because of these uh, things that God promised would happen then the exile was mm-hmm. actually just God following through on his word. So, yeah, for him to break the yoke of oxen and be like, oh, it's only going to be two years. I bet that was so compelling and so great to hear. Oh and all, gosh, everyone yeah. was like, oh, great, only two years. Let's not get comfortable. But Jeremiah was the only one who was able to point to the word and mm-hmm. actually be like, nope, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it is challenging, I think, when we think of ourselves because it's, yeah, it's kind of like that thought of like we want to, well, one, how like short-sighted we are. Yeah. Or it's mm-hmm. like, you know, someone prophesies something. We're like, yeah, that's for sure what's going to happen. Like, <laughs> I mean, even like the end of the world prophecies like yeah. that have happened. And it's like, I mean, if you kept track of all the ones that like came and passed, it would be crazy. But it's like we still keep listening to the people who say that. And it's like, well, maybe. And I'm not saying we shouldn't listen to them, but it's kind of like take it all with a grain of salt. But also as we prophesy, have some humility of being like, oh. Yep, I was wrong. You know what I mean? I'm learning yeah. and growing. Yeah, for sure. And, and not many of us probably should go about it in a, thus saith the Lord, like, this is what's for sure. But, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you do feel and hear things from the Lord, mm-hmm. and you go about it in that humble way. Like, you're saying, hey, this is what I feel. This is what I'm thinking the Lord's saying. And, you know, this is what I'm recognizing. But you take it to the Lord. Mm-hmm. You you go search it out and look in the Word. And if it's contradictory, hey, forget me. Yep, that's mm-hmm. all good. And I feel like that really touches on, like, because I think sometimes we, we like to copy and paste, like, prophecy then to yeah. today. Yep. And we have to keep in mind that in the Old Testament, they didn't have Holy Spirit. Yeah. Like, it, it says the Spirit came upon people, but it wasn't, like, Holy Spirit was living inside okay. them. And so it's, um, yeah, and that's the really cool thing about today is, um, like, we don't have to necessarily look to people to be that voice of the Lord because we have Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, I, I do think we should honor leaders and like, yeah, like people who have walked with the Lord for a sure. while, but, um, but it is also really good to kind of check that in your heart and be yeah. like, Oh, like maybe this doesn't sit too well. <laughs> like, yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, I think it's actually so encouraging because I guess like with prophecy, um, the old Testament, um, basically, it was setting the foundations, all pointing to the cross in certain respects. Yeah. Um, but then the New Testament version of prophecy should be a, um, a confirmation, not necessarily yeah. a revelation. Yep. So. No, that's a really good distinction too, Rose. Like, appreciate you bringing that up because as we're talking about prophecy here in the Old Testament, yeah, we need to remember the context of what it was like and 
that these things are applicable to us. The, there is still prophecy today. It just looks very different. And mm. prophets are just sort of like a different, maybe, yeah, a little different than it was. So, uh, yeah. but I encourage anybody listening as well to go and do, do a study on that and, and read, uh, you know, first Corinthians where Paul talks about prophecy and, and mm. some of the other places and get an idea for what a new Testament context of prophecy is. Mm. Um, yeah. Can I ask, um, why do we look at that Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? You know, it's it's definitely preached in many many churches all over the world, and and you know it is it's a very uplifting verse. Uh, why is it that that verse in particular you should take it with a grain of salt? Well, I mean, I think it just goes to speak to how we kind of read a lot of the Bible, where it's just kind of like nitpicking or cherry picking verses. And I don't think, like, well, take it with a grain of salt in the sense of the context of who God's speaking it to is, like, well, put yourself in their shoes. I mean, I can't imagine me being uprooted from, like, my, I guess I am a missionary in New Zealand, but I can't imagine, like, being uprooted from my home, like, say, China invaded the U.S. and I got exiled to China. Like, that would be pretty world shattering you know what I mean like mm. for my mind but also I don't to take it in the context of their worldview is God resides in Jerusalem God's going to protect us we're the children of Abraham he's given mm. us this land and so to be all the way in Babylon like this wicked kingdom it's like your spirits are going to be pretty shattered so I think it's like in that sense it's also extra encouraging like God's being more encouraging to them of like, I know the plans I have for you. Like I'm going to restore you versus, you know, Joe Schmo just kind of living his life. And God's going to bless me no matter what I do, because he has good plans for my life. And I do believe God has good plans for our life, but that doesn't always mean that like, we're mm. not going to go through suffering or hard things. Yeah. Cause the new Testament definitely talks about us being persecuted and, yeah, exactly. and things like that just for being on team Jesus, Jesus, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. So I think that's a really good question. And I think that's why we take it with a grain of salt. And like mm. the heart of it, it still is true. Like God has good plans for us. That's why I'm like, people want to get it tattooed for sure. But yeah. we can almost use it as an excuse of like, well, God's going to bless me no matter what I mm. do. And that's where I would say, no, that's, that's not. Because mm. if you this verse. Yeah. continue reading Jeremiah, you get to Jeremiah 44, 11. <laughs> I will destroy you. <laughs> is what God's saying. So, do we take the one where God's saying He'll protect us and He has a hope and a future for us, yeah. and not the "I will destroy you" one because mm. they're in the same book? You know, yeah. that's a really good point. Yep. If you're gonna cherry pick one, you can just as easily cherry pick the other. Yeah. And I think it's so good because I mean, I like as we've been tracing the story, like we we see how God's character and nature is so consistent, mm. and so I guess yeah. There is a, a warning to cherry pick verses because um, we can basically take something and make it s say something that we want to hear. But on the flip side, as long as I, I think we do have to be aware of like, like God's character and nature is consistent throughout the whole Bible. So like we can look at that verse and, and recognize like, wow, God is ultimately for me. Mm. He wants relationship with me. And even when it can be rough at times, like, he, he does want the best for me. Mm. And, and so, like, there might be times where, like, hey, you might veer off the track like the Israelites, but just as he treated the Israelites where he, he reeled them back in, he's going to mm. be the same in our lives. Yeah. So we can actually 
like take that truth and be like, okay, like ultimately God's character and nature is consistent. Mm. And so I would say even like looking at that verse within that context of like, man, like if God's this way with the Israelites, how much more is he with us? Mm. And, and like he cares and loves about us and ultimately he wants what's best for us. Not necessarily Mm. what we want, but ultimately for us to reflect him Mm. and to love others the way he does as well. Yeah. Yep. It's just kind of like the human dilemma. Maybe not the human dilemma, but it's like the same thing with like news today and all that. It's people yeah. just everything is just cherry picked and yep. When you actually <laughs> so look easy. at the context of things, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. true. But do it's your own really research. good thoughts. <laughs> yep. Do your own research. Good yeah. stuff. No good thoughts. Um, Joel, I just wanted to bring come back to one thing that you brought up, which was the prophet's test. So, how do you know a prophet? What they're saying is from the Lord. You know, we often take it in the bad sense of, like, destruction's going to come. Sure. But also, if you put it, like, when we're talking about these exiles, what's the hope? Is that, oh, all this restoration that they're actually going to say, God's the same way that he's ready and willing. Like, he gave this picture to Jeremiah to fulfill his word in destruction. He's also for restoration. I think that's kind of, like, the beauty of these books is it's, like, Yes, God's faithful to fulfill his words of destruction and bringing justice, but also for restoration and hope. And it gives them that much more reason to have hope, um, which I thought was just like a really good thing that you brought up. And I think just like a good reminder for some of these books is like, yeah, just as much as God, like God's not just destroying them for the sake, for like his pleasure because he's angry. Is it's like, this is his last resort. And he's fulfilling this covenant that they made, but his ho- his desire is always to restore them, kind of like what Rose was saying, right? Is to to redeem us and yeah. to bring us to a place of reflecting him, like, yeah. And he even says, I think it's in Ezekiel that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, you know. Yeah. So it's not like yeah. he's enjoying this or that it's like some oh, well, worship or sacrifice to him. Yeah. Even the the ones that essentially it's due to. You yeah. know, being a, yeah. a righteous judge, and he still takes no joy, and yeah, is that crazy? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. good. And and it's not uh, like God can't be manipulated, and he can't. He will keep his word, mm-hmm. and so that's why I really liked the Deuteronomy reference because it's like, well, it it was God's last resort. And me and Rose talked about the King's period, and all you see through that period is grace and second chances, yep. and him sort of staying off this this punishment, and then. It happens because God is of his word. Mm -hmm. And so, and he only allows it for 70 years and he doesn't wipe them off. Mm -hmm. And, and he's always kept that promise since Abraham. Yeah. And that's just awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so good. Um, nice. Well, that was a good little rabbit trail. Yeah. Um, (laughs) no, that's all really relevant stuff. So I like it. Um, I'm just going to hop back into kind of where we're at in the timeline. Uh, so we talked about Ezekiel being in Babylon. Oh yeah. I wanted to talk about Ezekiel's call. Um, so it's kind of crazy if you guys read Ezekiel, um, he has this crazy vision of God on this throne and there's these angels that have the face of an ox and a lion and eagle and a man. And there's these wheels with eyes inside the wheels and wheels within the wheels. And you're like, what the heck is going on? (laughs) Um, it's so funny if, uh, in Byron Bay, Australia, which is kind of like the hippie capital <laughs> of, yeah, the hippie capital of Australia. And yeah, anyways, it's like the spiritual place in Australia for like new age and all that. But one of our, one of my mates is over there and he was saying, he's like evangelizing to this guy and he's like, yeah, like who's trying to get him to like 
convince him that like psychedelic drugs are all good he's like yeah they're even in the bible like ezekiel did, you know like he was on psychedelic drugs like and you're you're like i mean i guess i could kind of see it for like these visions he had or, like, there's no evidence of it but it is crazy so yeah, yeah. Like, if you don't believe in god for yeah. sure that's an explanation found some peyote in the babylonian desert but anyways um no but i don't believe that i personally believe he got it from the lord but i think it's funny but anyways it's this crazy vision um but the whole idea if you think about it is like i mentioned for the hebrew context right god dwells in jerusalem he dwells in the temple that's where like the glory you know the the fire came down when solomon solomon dedicated the temple that's where god is you know he resides in jerusalem and here ezekiel's having this vision of god in babylon and it's like wow that's crazy and his throne has wheels right it's like wait so maybe god isn't just god in jerusalem maybe he's the lord maybe sovereign over the world yeah and basically ezekiel is trying to do the same thing that jeremiah was trying to do in jeremiah 29 of basically telling the people like hey settle down establish your lives because guess what god is going to destroy jerusalem so a lot of his prophecies sound like he's talking to people in jerusalem but he's trying to convince these exiles hey destruction's coming to jerusalem but god is going to restore us and so ezekiel's pretty hardcore and heavy and very like a visual thing and so god has him do like crazy things like lay on his side for a year and a half to like and he has him build a fake city and like build like this fake like that there's a siege going on he has him like cut off his hair throw a third to the wind cut a third up burn a third and you're like I can't imagine being around Ezekiel. Um, he must have been a wild guy. And also, he like God said that he would shut up his mouth so he couldn't say anything except for the words that God gave him. So it's like, I just imagine Ezekiel as your neighbor, and you're like, how's it going, Ezekiel? He's like, yep, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. You know, a third for pestilence, a third for destruction. You're like, nice. Um, <laughs> just lying, lying on the lawn. Yeah. Yeah. I think I might move. Yeah, yeah. Like, in the mail in the morning. Yeah. Your little robe. Like one of the things he had to do was like fake that he was going into exile. So he like packed his bags and like dug a hole in the side of his like wall, uh, dug a hole in the wall and like snuck out of the middle of the night. And you're like, wow, weird dude. Like Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. <laughs> he just buried the hole. He had to like eat his food with like trembling and drinking with like trembling. Like, so you're like, dung, right? Didn't he have to cook it over? Yeah. Was that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Gross. And so Ezekiel's kind of basically, that's the whole thing, is these, these exiles in Babylon, he's like, nope, build your lives, settle yourselves, because, like, Jerusalem's getting destroyed. And Jeremiah has this prophecy in uh, verse 24, or sorry, chapter 24, that I think really kind of sums up, basically, once the second exile happens, the whole thing. And basically, Jeremiah sees this vision of figs, and there's really good figs, and they look just super good to eat. And there's these really gross figs, like rotten and moldy. And what God says is, you know, these people who are in exile, they're actually these good figs. And the people who are in Jerusalem are the bad figs. And he's like, I've given over, like, I've, well, Jeremiah 29, there's good things intended for these people who are actually in exile. But the people who are still in Jerusalem, like, basically bad things are going to happen to them. And um, outside of the umbrella, outside of the umbrella, exactly. And it it's that's the opposite of the worldview, right? Because for them, right, Abraham, God gave Abraham this land. So if we're in this land, we're the ones who are blessed. And God's like, actually, you're the bad figs. And that's kind of how you can summarize the rest of it, because the people in exile, like, get blessed, you know, and they end up actually, well, 
cut forward a bunch of years, but actually only like 50,000 Jews end up returning from exile. Most of the people stay overseas because they'd been so blessed. And it's really interesting. Um, hmm. Anyways, but then the bad, like the people who are in Jerusalem just keep making the stupidest decisions. And so that's kind of what ends up happening is in 590, 589, so what is that, eight years later, um, Zedekiah, who was the king, decides, well, I'm going to rebel against Babylon. And so he starts making an alliance with Egypt. So, like, will you defend us if Babylon attacks us? Um, and so what does Babylon do? They start marching on Judah because they're rebelling. And so in 588, Babylon comes, and they start laying siege to Jerusalem. Um, and during this time, uh, Zedekiah kind of lets the slaves in the cities free, and it looks like things are going to go well. And actually, Egypt ends up coming to defend Judah. And so they start coming up, and what happens is God breaks this, well, maybe not God, but Egypt, or sorry, backtrack. Egypt is coming. Babylon is laying siege to Jerusalem. Babylon actually retreats and um, uh, basically everyone's like, wow, this is just like, this is God's deliverance of Jerusalem. This is amazing. And um, Jeremiah basically is like, well, Egypt's going to retreat, but Babylon's going to return. And um, yep, that's exactly what ends up happening. And so Egypt decides we're not going to fight your guys' battle. So they go back to Egypt, and Babylon just keeps returns and lays siege to them again. And so really from this point on, and like Jeremiah, his whole, like, his whole, like, uh, message is basically submit to Babylon. He's like, if you guys surrender to them, you're going to survive. And if you fight, you're going to die. And because they're the bad figs, right, they're making all these stupid decisions based out of pride and not humility to the Lord, they do that, and that's basically what ends up leading to the destruction of Jerusalem, is that they have this rebellion, they just don't submit to Babylon, they think that God's going to deliver them, and that they're blessed, and that's what ends up happening in 586, is um, their food runs out, um, and Babylon breaks through after two and a half years, and um, they loot the temple, they take all the stuff out of the city, they kill a bunch of people, and um, it's really interesting because there's uh, Nebuchadnezzar's general finds Nebu or Jeremiah in prison because he had been in prison because everyone's like, hey, basically you're promoting like pro-Babylon, your message is pro-Babylon, so we need to put you in prison so you don't like convince people to like <laughs> no surrender. Way. And so they put him in prison and Nebuzaradan, who's the general, finds him and they're like, hey, we know all about you, Jeremiah, like... What do you, where do you want to go? Like, if you want to come with us to Babylon, like, we'll take care of you out of the king's provisions, or you can stay here, like, whatever you want. And Jeremiah ends up staying with the people. But it's kind of interesting. I love that. It's like they know about Jeremiah and his message. You're like, oh, that's kind of cool. That is cool. Um, and so when we look at Ezekiel, that's, I think it's around chapter 32 or 33, is right when Jerusalem falls. And so God tells Ezekiel, hey, like, you're going to hear a messenger, and uh, you're going to be loosened. And basically, it's really cool in Ezekiel because right as soon as that point's over, his met, like his book is really intense on, like, destruction, and then that happens, and then it's all about hope and restoration. Yeah. And while, actually, Jeremiah's in prison, his cousin comes to him and is like, hey, I'm selling my field, and 
well, God tells him that this is going to happen. He's like, buy the field. And Jeremiah's like, God, why would I buy a field? He's like, first <laughs> off, I don't have any kids. I'm not married. And I know that Babylon's just going to destroy everything. And it's this picture that, like, laying your claim on this land and God is going to restore them. Wow. Kind of like the prophetic mm-hmm. test, you know, like he's going to bring him back. Um, and so that's how Ezekiel kind of becomes all about hope and restoration and building back again. Um, and so in 586, that's like the third exile, the one that we most know is that basically everyone except for the poor people get taken to Babylon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Jeremiah... Do you have a so comment? what happened to the, the temple? Oh, yeah. They destroy the temple and they take all the stuff and, yep, yeah, loot it and take it to Babylon. And so basically, like I said, everything that the worldview of these people in Judah, everything that the worldview is built on is just completely in shambles. You know, it's like the temple's destroyed, we're in Babylon, our home is, like, given over to the Babylonians. Like, basically their identity is completely shattered. Um, And so that's where we get the Book of Lamentations. Um, It's really interesting, actually, the last verse in Lamentations, I feel like kind of sums up, uh, or the last two verses sums up kind of the people's view going into exile they say restore us to yourself O lord that we may be restored renew our days as of old unless you have utterly rejected us and remain exceedingly angry with us and so kind of as we come into the post exilic so when we say that word post exile um that's kind of the people's mindset is like has god cast us off has he like you know what is it is he exceedingly angry with us you know or have he has he forsaken us basically um, that's kind of the question. And so that's why there's a lot of really good hope in Ezekiel. Um, yeah, just talking about, you know, the good shepherd. He talks about um, how God's going to defend them, how he's going to, you know, the valley of dry bones. Then you have, like, the temple vision. And it's all about, like, restoring Israel. He's going to restore them. Mm. Um, yeah, which is, like, really, really, really cool. Um, yeah, that's good. And so that kind of, like, sums up the the late prophets era and so as we come into the post-exilic era um that's where we kind of get to daniel and so daniel it's kind of debated like where what time frame he was actually written um so basically some people think he was when he says he is in history so he was taken to cap taken to babylon in the in 605 and he had this 90-year ministry with babylon and persia and some people think he was written like basically right before Jesus's time um, because a lot of his prophecies are like crazy specific. Um, personally, I think he was written when he was written. Um, when he said he was written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like in that time frame. But I guess just so you guys know, there is some debate over it. Sure. Um, and as Daniel has like tons of really cool stories. Um, all the, all the messages or maybe not all the messages, but the main message of most of his stories, right, is remain faithful to God, right? It's, you know, guess what? Like, Daniel remained faithful when there was this decree that you could pray to only the king. He remained faithful to praying to God, and they threw him in the lion's den, and God delivered him. And so the whole message is, like, remain faithful to God, and he will defend you, essentially. And so there's a lot of really cool stories like that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, and Daniel also has like crazy visions, um, which I can't, well, yeah, that's like a whole podcast in itself. So I'm not going to get too much into his visions, but I think a lot of it kind of goes into the post-exilic period. And so kind of what ends up happening is, 
well, not kind of what ends up happening. What actually ends up happening is, so Babylon is the main power, but Nebuchadnezzar is basically the only king that is relevant in their history. So they end up ruling for 70 years about. And so once Nebuchadnezzar dies, um, the next nation that becomes the superpower is, uh, you'll hear the words Medo-Persia. And usually it's referred to as Persia, but basically there are these two countries that ended up mending and there's a really cool story i might butcher it a little bit but i'll try to attempt to say it but it's about king cyrus so he was um i think he was the son of the persian king um and basically this guy there was this prophecy that he was going to unite the kingdoms and this per of persia and media and the king was really insecure about it thought that he was going to like run raise up and kill him so he had his servant try to He's like, go kill my son because I don't want this happening. And the servant couldn't, he couldn't kill him. Um, like, I guess, whatever. He just had too much compassion on him. But he found these farmers who had recently had a child who died. And so what he did was he gave them King Cyrus, the, the baby, and took their dead baby and basically was like, all right, this is, this is the dead baby. I killed him. And he ends up getting raised by these people and getting raised in media and ends up taking the throne in media and then realizing that his like right is to the throne of Persia as well wow. and he unites the kingdom and it's crazy. Whoa. It's really crazy. Isn't that wild? And he's then like he's, Superman. Yeah. He's like Superman. <laughs> and he prophesied about like a hundred years before yeah. he was even around. Yeah. So Isaiah like, prophesies about him, yeah. yeah, how how he's gonna be the one and by name. Yeah, yeah by name. By name. Which is amazing. crazy. Yeah. And so they end up becoming the next big kingdom. Um, and so what happens, this is in Daniel five or I think it's five. Um, Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar is having a feast and basically, um, these words appear on the wall, you know, your days are numbered. Um, you've been waited, found wanting. And that was the night that Persia invaded them. And it was really interesting also that story because Babylon was a super secure fortress, like, like, yeah, insane city. Um, and the only way that people could get in was through the riverbed, but they had these gates that would block the river from like armies diverting the river and marching in. But for whatever reason that night, the gates were left open. And so <laughs> Persia diverted the stream and marched right in and everyone, uh, Belteshazzar was the only, uh, uh, casualty when they conquered Babylon because everyone hated him so much. <laughs> they just like just surrendered. They were all like excited that Persia came and conquered them. And so Persia became the next superpower. Um, and they had a lot of different Kings, um, that reigned. And so Cyrus, it's really interesting when we talk about like, uh, just like kingdoms of this world and the new covenant as well, because I, I think this is so interesting when we look at like Assyria and Babylon, like they rule their kingdoms by fear and by, you know, if you don't submit to what we're saying, then I'm going to like crucify you. I'm going to impale you. I'm going to skin you alive. And that's how they decided to rule their kingdom. But they think that Ezra might've been the roots of some of the Pharisees, like yeah, well the root of kind of the Pharisee movement is like the super zeal. And I mean, They'll talk about that next week with Jesus Week, so I won't talk about it. But basically, they ended up building extra laws, this oral law around the law. And so, you know, if, if God doesn't want us to break the Sabbath, well, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean to work? We need to actually have definitive things. So one of the things is that 
you know, you can't water your field, that counts as work. So if you spit on the ground, that counts as watering your field, which counts as work, which counts as you breaking the Sabbath, which it's like you can't find that in the Bible or in the Torah, but they created this extra law outside of the law because of this extra zeal of yeah, not wanting to go back into exile, um, which is a really good point. And, and um, the books as well, Ezra and Nehemiah, don't really comment on that, no. right? Because some of the stuff they're doing, you don't see commands from God to do. No. But then you also don't see really God's opinion of it either. Yeah. So I can understand what you're saying. Like, it is a little confusing. Yeah, you're like, and Malachi comes along and God says, you know, I hate divorce. And yeah, so yeah, it's like, sure. well, is he addressing what happened with Ezra or is he addressing <laughs> another divorce problem? I don't, I don't really know. Who knows? But I think it just is kind of a bit... <laughs> Like, sometimes we like to make it cut and dry, where I'm like, I don't know if it really is actually as cut and dry. It's kind of like, well, that's historical narrative as we're supposed to look at it. And, you know, it's not blatantly saying this is bad, this is good all the time, but sometimes it's like fill in the blanks, you know? And so some of it seems bad in their zeal, but some of it seems, you know, good. Mm-hmm. But. And, I mean, even with the law, so, like, when we were reading over First and Second Samuel and the kings, like, you had to understand the law in order to kind of figure out what's going on. Like, right. oh, like, what, you know, when they did this, that was in the law. So mm-hmm. they should have known that was not okay. But, yeah, it seems like now that they're in this new time frame, they're, they're kind of sifting through some stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And so the second return with Ezra, um, they also start rebuilding the temple. And so we get this story in Ezra where they rebuilt the temple and it says, you know, all the old people who had seen the glory of Solomon's temple, you know, were basically crying because it was so pathetic and in uh, comparison. And then the new people, you know, people who had never seen the temple of Solomon were rejoicing. And so is this mixed shout. And it also kind of ties to Ezekiel and his vision of the temple because it's like this huge temple, super beautiful. And, you know, when it actually ends up getting rebuilt, it's like kind of lame. Just <laughs> pretty like, tiny. <laughs> yeah, pretty tiny. Um, and anyways, what ends up happening is that when Herod comes to power, he's super wealthy and super rich and he ends up um, decorating the temple, redoing it and making it like insanely nice. Um, like literally coating the entire outside with gold like that nice and so anyways but when in this post-exilic period it's kind of weird because also when they dedicate the temple remember with solomon in the tabernacle there was always this outward thing of like god filling the temple but this time it was like nothing happened and so it's just kind of like this no weird <laughs> yeah there's no fire there's no smoke there's no nothing it was just kind of like it started again and so really interesting i don't know i'm not going to comment on the like implications of that but just kind of interesting things to know i guess in this period um there was no ark of the covenant either right yeah so mm-hmm. and when was the la- the next time fire came down like i guess oh did, right. was there ever a fire with herod's temple or no. was there a presence not that i know of that, at least yeah just the I think I know what you mean, the Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Really Which is a good thought. Yeah, God yeah. filling his body is the new temple. Um, yeah, and so under Persia, right, the three exiles, or sorry, three returns to Jerusalem happened. Um, 
And it's kind of like this interesting period. And Amos prophesied that there would be a drought, but not of water, but of the word of the Lord. And that's kind of what happens after this period is that we have the prophets of Malachi, Haggai, and Zechariah. And they're all prophesying into the situation. Um, so kind of encouraging people to be faithful. Um, Haggai is talking about, you know, encouraging people to commit themselves to the rebuilding of the temple. Zechariah is encouraging Joshua. Joshua, who is the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the leader, and he's encouraging them, right? So it's all very encouraging prophecy. And there is some correction, but for the most part, it's like, you guys can do this. Like, you got it. And after those books, there's just this radio silence. And that's kind of like what Daniel kind of goes into. So there's he has these visions of this, this statue that has a gold head, silver body, bronze waist, iron legs, and iron and clay feet. And so a lot of people think that and I would kind of agree that that's kind of talking about the future kingdoms. And so the gold head is Nebuchadnezzar, and that's revealed to Daniel. But the next one ends up being Persia, and then the next one is Greece, and then the next is Rome. And it's interesting because in that he says, then a stone that's not cut by human hands will descend from heavens and smash this and to find dust, and there will be no trace of it. And this this rock will grow until it covers the whole earth. And it's prophesying the future kingdom, the Messiah, is that there's these nations, and then at the end of these nations, there's going to be this Messiah, and God's going to establish his kingdom on earth. And that's kind of like what Daniel is pointing towards. And so that's kind of the history that happens. And so Persia rules for a while, um, a couple hundred years, and if you guys have seen 300, that's kind of near the end of yeah. Persia's reign, mm-hmm. is they're trying to take Greece, and um, Persia... I've they basically, I think they, if you count like their empire size by like the population of the world, they actually had the biggest empire or one of the biggest of all time. Wow. I think they had like, it was either a quarter or a third of all the population of the world was under their rule at one point, which is crazy. Wow. So they had a huge empire. Um, and anyways, they end up going and try to conquer Greece, which was kind of just different tribes and colonies. And, um, they end up getting, they lose there and they end up losing in Africa and a few places. And that's kind of like the weakening of their empire and the next kingdom that ended up rising up in this era. So this is, we don't find this in the Bible, but we find this in history explaining is the, is the Greek empire. And so, um, the, if you guys know the philosophers of like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, um, I can't remember which one, but one of them was, do you know Rose was um, over? Basically, he was the tutor for Alexander, who was the king of Greece, and he was telling Alexander, "If you want to establish a kingdom, you know, ever anyone can conquer the world, but if you want to have a lasting kingdom, establish your culture, give them your language, your culture, do all these things." And so Alexander came to power really young. I think he was late twenties, early thirties, and basically he just went on. I don't want to say a rampage, but maybe that's what it, a good word to describe <laughs> it. He basically conquered the entire known world in like five years. And they conquered all the way to Egypt. They conquered all the way to India. And basically the only reason his army turned around is because they, well, the only reason Alexander stopped is because his army wouldn't go any farther. They were tired of being yeah. in this war path and they wanted to go home. And so we see prophecies about this in Daniel. He says that there's a ram with two horns which is Persia, and there's this goat that's going to drive it away. And so that's Alexander the Great. And basically what happens is he 
conquers the whole known world, and then his his army gives up. They want to go home, and he dies. They don't really know why he died, but he didn't have a successor. Um, people have theories on why he died, but he didn't have a descendant, someone to take the throne. And so the legend says that as he died, they asked, who's going to take the kingdom? And he said, the strongest. And so what ends up happening is... Brutal. They, I know. That is so <laughs> mean. You too. That's awesome. Yeah. So I don't know if it's true, but it sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it does. Um, but so basically the kingdom gets divided between his four kings, uh, or sorry, kings, his generals. And they split it up. And basically Israel ends up being one of the highly contended plant lands between the Ptolemaic Empire and the Seleucid Empire. And so um, that's what a lot of Daniel, I think, is addressing is basically this conflict that's going to be en- end up happening when you look at Daniel chapter 11 and 12. Um, there's this, it's this king of the north and this king of the south. And actually, nearly all of it is actually tied up to historical events that happened. But basically, they're just fighting over Israel because it's a very valuable piece of land. Um and actually during this period, uh, so it builds up to this point and there's this really bad king. And so in a lot of Daniel's prophecies, so it says that the ram with the horn that butts away the, or sorry, the goat with the horn that butts away the ram with two horns, his horn splits into four pieces, which is the four generals. But it says that one of the pieces grows stronger than the others. And that it's building up to this guy, the king of the Seleucid Empire, the kingdom of the north, and his name was um, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. I think I'm saying that right. Um, and he was super bad. So he took this idea that Alexander established the Greek Empire of what it was called, putting Greek culture in the world, is Hellenism. And so basically, Helen means like, Greek Hellenism, you know, it's like basically implanting their culture. So everywhere that the right. Greek Empire went, they're like, you have to speak Greek. You're going to have amphitheaters, gymnasiums. You're going to dress like us, worship our gods, all this stuff. And so it's kind of crazy because we're still like yeah. a pretty Greek society. When you think of like Alexander's impact, it's like, yeah, pretty crazy. But yeah. um, Alexander, he was so it was uh, his tutor was Aristotle. Aristotle, okay. and uh, yeah, that was actually. I think the the word that they use is apostle, right? That they would send the apostles mm-hmm. with the um, the good news. Yeah, the... well, the apostles were like those that would go with the the armies, and they would bring the culture. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, that's Sounds where right. you get the word evangelion, which is oh, evangelion, yeah, the good news. Yeah, exactly. Right. So they would basically bring the good news that Greece, Greece was here. Yeah. Is the new kingdom. Right. So when we say mm. we're going to go do evangelism, bringing the good news that yeah, true. The, God's kingdom is being established. Yep. Yeah. And as an apostle or an ambassador for Christ, you bring that culture along as well, like the kingdom culture. And they were bringing mm-hmm. this Greek culture, but interesting how those words, they're still in our vernacular. And like you said, our culture still is sort of mimicking that one, but yeah. <laughs> What did you say? The Mickey? No. Oh no, mim- it's mimicking. Oh, mimicking. <laughs> the Mickey. Ta- our whole culture takes the Mick. <laughs> takes the Mick. Um, yeah, really interesting stuff to think about. Hey. And they all spoke the same language, right? Yeah. So that was oh. the thing: is they established Greek, which it's like if you think of God's plan, and like well, in Galatians it says that Jesus was sent at the right time. It's like yeah, literally, you know, you can argue did God actually do it or not? You know, was it the devil? Whatever, but either way, when Jesus came on the scene, the whole world spoke, well, the whole world that they knew spoke the same language, which is crazy. 
Um, and that's why the New Testament would have been written in Greek. Exactly. And it would have been effectively spread because you didn't have to translate it. Yep. Just mm. it went out. Yep. Yeah. And that's where we get um, the Septuagint um, is basically there was in Alexandria, um, Egypt, they were assembling this library and they wanted to assemble all the works of literature of like the whole world. And so, and get it in Greek. And so they got a bunch of Hebrew or sorry, like rabbis who spoke Greek and Hebrew to translate the new Testament. So it's also called the L I X or L X X, which is you meant the 70. old Testament, right? Yes. What did I say? Yeah. New Testament. Oh, sorry. Yes, old Testament. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible into <laughs> Greek. And so it's called the Septuagint or the L X X, which is the 70, the 70 scholars who translated it. Um, and they, yeah, that was kept at the, the, uh, library of Alexandria. Yep. And so that's where if you most, that's the new Testament or sorry, the old Testament that the apostles and Jesus quote in the new Testament. So if you ever notice that in the new Testament, why does like the verses that Jesus say sound different than like maybe in your old Testament? It's because the one we have is translated from Hebrew, but the one he had was the Greek old Testament essentially. Wow. Greek translation of the old Testament. So, um, so what happened to the Greek empire? Oh yeah. So that's what I was building up. So they established their culture, which obviously if you think of the Jewish culture, the whole point God gave them the law was to be different than the nations. And so that's going to create some conflict. And so there was a lot of conflict that happened, but especially under Antiochus Epiphanes, the fourth, who is the Seleucid King. And he was super angry that the Jews wouldn't take their culture and so he basically you know outlawed circumcision outlawed jew like practicing the law and ended up desecrating the temple he sacrificed a pig on the altar and um there was this guy um this family called the maccabees and there's this guy called judas maccabees which literally just means the hammer which is like the most metal (laughs) name ever the hammer um and he, this family basically got so angry that this was happening that they formed a army to rebel against Greece. And actually, they ended up winning their independence and had an era of 100 years where Jerusalem was independent and could do whatever it wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we come into the New Testament, that's what the, the Jews are expecting out of their Messiah, is it for it to be this Judas Maccabees type guy who's going to defeat the Romans. But anyways, the Greeks ended up falling to Rome um, and Rome ended up becoming the next empire. And um, they, yeah, Rome was pretty similar to Greece. They kind of adopted a lot of the same things. Basically they just did like, instead of the Greek pantheon, they just adopted, you know, their own pantheon. So that's where we get all the planets are named after the Roman pantheon. Um, Mars, Jupiter, Venus, yep, all of them. Um, That's the Roman pantheon um, of gods. And basically they just kind of like took a lot of Greek culture and just made it Roman. But what they did is they established roads. um, They established, well, a lot of like buildings and stuff like that. And so that's where Herod was. And so he ended up rebuilding the, well, not rebuilding the temple, but uh, what would be, refurbishing, embellishing it. Embellishing yeah. It. yeah. <laughs> um, and that's kind of the time frame we come to the New Testament. Um, but kind of during that time, right, we left off with Ezra, you know, being super zealous during that time, there are different groups of Jews that have kind of started to develop. And so some of them, uh, a few were the Pharisees, right? And so they had made this oral tradition of law, basically, 
you know, an extra law. Um, there were the Sa- Sadducees, and basically they were more elite, you could say. Um, they had a few theological differences, but they were also like, uh, I guess they just were a bit more uh, what, what aristocratic, maybe is the right word. Mm-hmm. Um, then you had the Hellenists, and so these guys, or sorry, yeah, yeah, and so these were more, or no, sorry, the Herodians, I always get that mixed up. The Herodians, they were more partial towards Rome, so they were like a group of Jews who were, um, yeah, I guess, like they weren't that fussed with the Roman occupation, and they kind of used that. Um, there was this group called the Essenes, and they were like, John Baptist was, if you think of John Baptist, that's essentially the Essenes. They lived out in the wilderness, super focused on holiness, and like all this stuff, and they actually is where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. They translated a bunch of and had a bunch of these religious texts. And so when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a bunch of, that's where they got the fragment of Isaiah that's like 99% um, there. Or is it all there, Rose? Do you know? Wow. I don't know. But I didn't they know got, that. And they got a bunch of like early, or like those post-exilic texts that kind of um, fill in that. And that's from these scenes who were out in the middle of the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a couple, are there any that I'm missing that you can think about the top uh, of There's head? like god fears. Oh, yeah. Oh, and the zealots. The zealots are really important because those are the people who look back at Judas Maccabees and they're like, we want independence from Rome. And so that's kind of like, yeah, the revolutionaries, exactly. So that's kind of like the climate we get to as we approach um, the New Testament and kind of some of the history that happened in that um, that intertestamental or post-exilic period. Um, Yeah, whatever you want to label it. Yeah. I know it's like so crazy just to see that and even you know with the like it brings so much like to context of like I mean with with this guy Judas who who led the revolt mm-hmm. um like it makes sense even with Judas like betraying Jesus like he wanted Jesus to be this military leader yeah. just like that guy Horses yeah. um yeah so it, it really wow. shapes their worldview and I think uh it's so easy to to jump into the gospels and yeah, just be like, oh, like they're so stupid. Why don't they see that Jesus is clearly the Messiah? And but really, like these people, I mean, there's a lot of history that happens. Um, and even I, there was a prophecy about there being 400 years of silence. And yeah. this is when there's no like appointed prophet to to point yep. the people back yeah. to covenant. Um, I mean, God's hand was still moving, but there there was like almost like this this hunger that was being. I guess stirred up in the Israelites to ultimately um, like recognize that they need a savior. And so everything was just banking on, yeah, the savior and, and Jesus just came at the perfect time where the gospel could spread. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, like they're like, he wasn't the plan B. He was actually the plan A all along, but it's so cool to see how God's also not afraid of, taking the long route and to reveal just who he is through the story of the Israelites, but then also um, now extended to us and yeah. wanting to, for uh, or for us to recognize that our need for your savior yep. as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's also interesting. A few things I forgot to mention is I talked about, you know, only maybe about 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem. The rest just stayed you know, whether that's in Persia or actually the spread. So if you ever hear the word diaspora, that basically means the spreading of 
people, the dispersion of the Jews throughout the world. And it's actually really interesting when we come to the New Testament because Paul, when he travels and does his missionary journeys, he always goes to synagogues first. And so if there were 12 Jews within a community, they would establish a synagogue. Um, And it's kind of interesting that like the Jewish culture was also throughout the world, um, which is kind of interesting also paving the way yeah, for Jesus and his ministry. And um, also when Rome came to power, you know how I talked about Greece, there's constantly fighting in their kingdom. Mm-hmm. Well, with Rome, they established the thing not long before Jesus came, actually, which was called Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. And so it's really interesting. So during the time of Jesus and actually the apostles, and it didn't last for like that long, maybe a hundred years at the most, but there was actually peace, which for the first time in thousands of years, there's yeah. peace, wow. which is kind of crazy. And so that's why Paul and his like all these people are able to travel and all this stuff is because the Roman government, and I'm not saying that the Roman government was necessarily good, but they established peace for the first time, like ever, which is kind of crazy. And so that, that was really important going into the new Testament is that the Romans want to keep peace no matter what. So if the, so the zealots and all these people, people establishing their kingdom, they squash any of that because Roman peace is the most important thing. And when you say peace, you mean there's no wars that are yeah. breaking out. Yeah. yeah right. So, yeah, even even though we think of peace as like a good thing, like the Romans did uh, reinforce that. So, yeah, it wasn't necessarily um, a nice thing. Yeah. So, it, it like of course we all desire peace, but yeah, yeah, it's like interesting how they went about that. Yeah. Saw it that way. Yeah. So I think to wrap all of it up, I think so. Looking at the late prophets. You know, we mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but, you know, God doesn't delight in the death of any wicked person. And I don't think his plan, I don't know if God has like plan A, B, C, but I don't think his plan A was necessarily to destroy Jerusalem and do this. But I think his hand was forced. It was like what Joel was talking about. You step outside of the umbrella, it rains, you know, like the wages of sin is death. You know, it's kind of like this law of sin and death. And it ends up happening, right? They end up going into exile. And, but... I, I remember being challenged by this of, you know, sometimes it's like we ask God, how could how could you send these people into exile? How could you do this? But really, when you look at God's mercy, he waited 800 years. So he had 800 years of mercy that he gave them to repent. And it's like, then he finally handed them over to reap what they had sown, which was rebellion. You know what I mean? Which was like all these bad things. And so, like, I think just remembering that as a takeaway in God's faithfulness and restoration, right? And it becoming about not just obedience to the law and not just fulfilling all those things, but actually how God's going to establish his kingdom, like that vision in Daniel. What is this rock that's not cut with human hands? What's that going to be? What's his kingdom spreading throughout the world going to be? There's this growing anticipation and, yeah, I don't know, just like there's a lot that happens in this era that, like, unfortunately we can't go into, but it's a really rich, really rich era. But it's all this anticipation building of how is God can establish his kingdom and what is it going to look like um yeah and i think that's where i'm gonna leave i don't know if you have anything else to say rose or i think that's good you did amazing (laughs) yeah awesome and thanks so much for both of you for being here and for making this possible um man there's so much meat there i think a lot of history particularly but uh johnny i appreciate you setting us up for the new testament um informing Uh, what we're reading now. And so, yeah, we'll have uh, Louisa on next week to talk about Jesus, to talk about the Gospels, the early church. And so, yeah, come and join us for that. Um, 
and when we drop that one. Uh, but thank you so much, Johnny. Yeah, totally. Please come again. Rose, (laughs) good to see you as always. Good to see you. (laughs) And we'll see you again soon. Thank you everybody for joining. Remember to read along and uh, yeah, we encourage you to dive into this scripture for yourself and uh, some of the historical background here as well. So keep studying, keep reading, and keep listening along for more on the Jesus Magnet Bible Overview series. Thanks so much. 